It's Thursday, March 17th, and this is Market Foolery. I'm Matt Greer, sitting in for Chris Hill today. And joining me in studio is James Early from Income Investor and Seth Jason and Charlie Travers from Hidden Gems. Guys, happy St. Patrick's Day. Happy St. Patrick's Day to you, As we've done this week, we're going to begin um, the show by talking about Japan. Um, James, Goldman Sachs has come out and estimated that the disaster um, could reach $200 billion in terms of what it costs Japan. Um, That would be around 3% of Japan's GDP. What do you make of it all? Well, Mac, a lot of people are talking about GDP, and that's not really the best gauge of what's going on here for two reasons. First, um, that infrastructure spending to rebuild uh, factors into the GDP, just mathematically speaking. So that might actually provide a boost to GDP. The second is that these regions collectively, this is an industrial area of Japan, but they still only make up about 4% of Japan's total GDP. So if you take reduce their output by half or a third or, a, I don't know, a fourth, whatever might happen, it's still not a major thing, at least according to, to the Japanese government's numbers. So I would say it's not worth arguing about that like they're doing in the media. The better thing to think about is this is affecting a country that has been borrowing heavily for 20-plus years. I think debt is now twice or, or more than twice uh, Japan's GDP, and that's going to be the real story as we go years down the road. Uh, Japan is really, really have to has to sort of dig itself out of this debt hole. Seth? Yeah, I think that is, is really the story because, of course, uh, what can happen when you borrow that much is eventually uh, people start demanding uh, a lot more in terms of interest payments for what they're willing to loan you. And so uh, one of the choruses we hear here in the U.S. all the time is that, is that we have to to worry about that right now. And that's not the case. Of course, Japan right now does need to borrow this money in order to, to rebuild. That's There's no question about that. It's whether or not Japan can make wise investments with that money uh, and then uh, kind of ratchet it back going forward. That uh, We won't know the answers to that for you know a decade. Well, we will continue to talk more about this on our weekly show, uh, Motley Full Money. But let's move on to um, oil prices. Um, James, they topped $100 a barrel on Thursday. We've got the situation in Bahrain where the government forces crack down on protesters and Saudi Arabia now involved because Saudi Arabia providing military support. So what does all that mean for the oil markets? Well, first of all, Mac, Bahrain's oil production itself is tiny. I mean, you take a Hummer or two off the road and, and you're even. So yeah. the issue is not so much a, dis- a supply disruption there, but Bahrain is, in terms of the, the news story, it's like a, a child caught in a celebrity divorce. It's not in the news because of itself. Uh, the parents in this case are Saudi Arabia and Iran, and they're both sort of battling to win uh, Bahrain over. Iran sort of thinks of Bahrain as itself. It's, it's had been accused of promoting uh, uprising uh, among the, the Shiite majority, who's, who's fighting the, 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 the Sunni, the ruling Sunni uh, minority. Uh, the U.S. also is involved. They have a naval base there. So it's really sort of a, a, a love triangle of big countries fighting in this teeny country of Bahrain. So the big thing is if something happens to Saudi Arabia, if the unrest spreads there, that would have a material impact on oil prices. Yeah, and they go up now because people are worried, uh, traders are worried, uh, or they're at least hoping that others are worried and they can sell them the oil at higher prices, that this is sort of the the thin edge of the wedge that would would really disrupt oil supplies. I mean, if something happened in Saudi Arabia, if we saw an uprising like we've seen in in Libya and some of the other countries, that would really, uh, well, you wouldn't have seen nothing yet. Thin edge of the wedge? Is that a Minnesota saying? That's a I've never heard that before. I think I heard that like in a movie promo or something. Huh. The thin edge of the wedge. So, so James, if this does continue to get worse, if um, Saudi Arabia is more and more connected to what's going on there, then what does it mean for oil stocks? Well, yeah, it, it's going to hurt pretty much every kind of stock except oil uh, stocks. Uh, that's sort of obvious. Uh, and they'll go up higher. The thing is, these sort of 
conflicts can also wind down as quickly as they escalate. So you don't want to necessarily just go crazy buying oil right now because if, if this thing fizzles out, oil goes back down and oil stocks will go back down too. So yeah, if oil services uh, stocks and uh, those who supply uh, something like dynamic materials who, who provide uh, material for uh, the oil the oil, the business of getting oil and gas out of the ground, as well as into refineries, those would stand to benefit because, of course, the uh, the more expensive oil gets and the less the smaller the supply coming out of the Middle East, the more we'd have to ramp up here. But as James points out, it goes both directions, and uh, a lot of those stocks had already run up just based on the recent oil price increase. Charlie, yeah, and the the time to buy these stocks is when. Uh you know, commodity prices are low and everybody's worried about profits across the industry and the capital spending. And that was 2009 and 2010. You know, I'd, I'd almost argue the worst time to buy is when the prices are high and everybody's kind of piling into the market and it's a crowded trade. And then, as James said, if it winds down, you're the one who's stuck buying at the top. Um, so I would look, look for a more cautious entry point than uh, what you're seeing right now. Okay, and we move to much lighter fare. There is a new player in the movie rental market. Guys, this is maybe my favorite story of the week. Zadiva is making new DVDs available for instant viewing online for $1.99 per movie. Um, and this is how it works. They rent you a DVD and, in essence, a DVD player. But you don't get that DVD, and the DVD player and the DVD are actually located in Silicon Valley. Seth Jason there's a big legal question here involving some murky copyright issues. And I guess there's kind of a question about the business itself. Well, when you first hear, don't get too excited because uh, the, the folks running this You're always raining on my praise. Come on. Yeah. Come they, on. I'm getting excited, they, too. They can't just rent one DVD and then, you know, stream eight streams off it or 100 streams off it. Not only is that technically not possible, but it would be highly illegal. Uh, what has allowed Netflix and, and other movie rental companies uh, to go ahead and pursue those business models is this uh, first purchase doctrine or something, I believe it's called. And, and there was a court case. They, they had a fight with the movie industry about this years ago. But what it means in essence is that once you buy that DVD, you can go ahead and rent it to other folks. And that appears to be what they're trying to do here. And they're trying to say, well, we're not technically streaming video. We're actually just providing a really long remote control wire from you know your computer to our machine. But even if the, there's no legal issue here, and I'm not expert enough to know if there is one, it still just sounds like the, the dumbest business model I've ever heard of because it doesn't scale. And indeed, some of the, the CNET and others who were reporting on this are saying, I, I couldn't get a movie to, to show up anyway. So uh, this will get a little bit of press. I think the people at Netflix are probably laughing and hoping that, uh, that this is the best uh, challenge that people will come up with and come at them. How, because how is this that different from Blockbuster, though? I mean, you're renting one DVD at a time. Oh, no. Well, you're person, also, you're right? also technically renting that, D, that uh, DVD player, too. So the cost is yeah. even worse. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so hold on here. You're yeah. saying the legal challenge may not be their biggest issue. <laughs> I, 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 don't, I don't know how it works. I would love it if they call us up and explain, explain the numbers. I just can't see this working. I, I believe it was Aristotle who called the merchant class the, the lowest of the low. And uh, I won't dispute that here, but at least it's <laughs> interesting. Charlie, what's your take? And, and I got to add that the CEO of Zadiva says it's like watching with a long cable and a long remote control. <laughs> it reminds me of old VCRs from the 80s when they were wired before we first got the wireless uh, remotes. Um, I, I actually don't see how this is a good deal for consumers, and I see that would be as the main reason why this doesn't take off. Um, you get these, you know, the, the whole shtick is that you get a physical DVD uh, kind of into your living room before um, 
the w- streaming window opens up. But I don't see why uh, a consumer can't go to Redbox outside of a Seven Eleven or um, you know the few blockbusters remaining themselves and get it cheaper than what Zadiva is renting it for. Well, let's move on to Netflix because yeah. Netflix also made some news this week. Um, looks like they're they're trying to compete directly with cable television. We have reports that they outbid both AMC and HBO for a new Kevin Spacey drama, House of Cards. Now, guys, if that deal happens, um, Netflix would be streaming the series before it airs on cable television. And according to reports, Netflix would run 26 episodes and pay around $100 million. Seth? <laughs> <laughs> and, not, and not run any advertising on it? So we This is where the studio execs must be laughing. So you're skeptical. Off. You're skeptical. Everybody loves to hate Hollywood studio execs and... And the buzz here in the office is among Netflix fans is, oh, but they know so much about what their viewers want to watch that they wouldn't have purchased this if, you know, they didn't know that people want to watch. You know, I have to say to that, studio execs aren't idiots. They also have tons and tons of of knowledge about what people want to watch. And they get the wrong shows all the time. So if you're, if, if you're Netflix, you're not expert at this, and you're in there outbidding the likes of HBO and AMC, I think... Either you don't know what you're doing, you're likely to pay too much. This just sounds like a great opportunity for Netflix to lose a lot of investor money. Okay, Charlie, but Netflix has around 20 million subscribers right now, HBO 28 million. So um, in terms of subscribers, they've got the numbers. Can Netflix compete with HBO, you think? Uh, yes, and you know it's in a sense where if they stand still and just keep doing what they're doing, uh, you know, it's – Kind of the road, um, you know, downward from them. Uh, so they got to take some calculated risks here. And you know, I, I like companies that are willing to take a chance to fail. However, you know, the the price of failure can't be a bet your business kind of situation. And a hundred million dollar price tag for a business that only does a couple hundred million in cash flow a year is a very very big bet. And I'm not sure it's one worth taking. Uh, while admitting that they can't just keep, uh, you know, standing still. James, well, might this be more of a strategic? or gimme in terms of, of, of f- for the studios? I mean, if, if they think Netflix is re- ready to open his pockets, they might be... A bluff. A bluff, yeah, in terms of future licensing deals because oh, yeah, they have it coming up. Pretty expensive. A hundred mil- expensive spend, bluff. Spend $100 million in order to try to get the studios to charge you less on your content. Well, and that deal's not done, though. We should clarify that it looks like that they, they could be the top bidder, but it's not done. So, it, you know, it's only a few years back where Netflix's uh, Red Envelope was co-producing and doing distribution partnerships on indie movies where they had an economic stake in the content, and they shut that down in 2008 because they felt they only needed to be a distribution point and have a customer relationship and not actually own the content themselves. So now here we are a few years later with them reversing course can, on can, what they did. Can I go, is seldom profitable. Can, can yeah. I go to Aquila and the Bee? To Aquila, me, this, oh, this, is, this, is, this smacks of Starbucks and the egotistical uh, Charles Schultz and their, you know, Aquila and the Howard Bee. Schultz. For, Howard Schultz, yes, or George <laughs> Don't Schultz. Don't implicate the peanuts. <laughs> no, the peanuts. Howard Schultz and their promotion of Aquila and the Bee. And it all stems from this idea that you're successful at one thing and you know so much about your customers that you can begin to dictate dictate you know or serve their tastes in other areas now netflix is a lot closer they're 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 more within their wheelhouse here than starbucks uh telling us which movie to watch but i still don't think that this is a good risk for them they need to stick they need to dance with the girl they brought this to me just sounds desperate and it's just another reason that i would stay away from netflix stock okay closing question or two closing questions first of all what's the biggest threat to netflix charlie uh facebook Seth? Netflix's own success with internet streaming is is its biggest challenge because 
it's a business that just about anybody else can get into it as long as they've got some a money. Few DVD players and a guy to and a, a few <laughs> DVD players and a guy to put them in, a guy to push play. Yeah. And you stole my final question, which was, "What's the biggest threat to Zadiva?" <laughs> its own business. <laughs> <laughs> okay, guys. Um, from Income Investor James Early, from Hidden Gem Seth Jason, Charlie Travers. Guys, thanks. Thank, Thank you, you, Mac. Thank you, Mac. You can catch our weekly show, Motley Fool Money, um, beginning tomorrow, Friday. And as always, please remember that people on the show may have interest in the stocks they talk about. Don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. We will see you on Monday.